Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover the data from the ACOG Practice Bulletin on spontaneous abortion or, more appropriately, early pregnancy loss. Spontaneous abortion is any pregnancy that is lost up to 19 weeks and 6 days, whereas a parity, a birth, is recognized as one occurring at 20 weeks and 0 days or greater. Early pregnancy loss is defined as a non-viable intrauterine pregnancy with either an empty gestational sac or a gestational sac containing an embryo or fetus without fetal cardiac activity within the first 12 and 6 sevenths weeks of gestation. Between 13 weeks and 20 weeks, it is defined as not early pregnancy loss, but simply spontaneous abortion or a second trimester miscarriage. In the first trimester, the terms miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, and early pregnancy loss are used interchangeably, and there is no consensus on terminology in the literature. However, early pregnancy loss is a term that is recognized mainly by the college. Approximately 50% of all cases of early pregnancy loss are due to fetal chromosomal abnormalities. The most common risk factors identified among women who experience early pregnancy loss are advanced maternal age and a prior early pregnancy loss. The frequency of clinically recognized early pregnancy loss for women aged 20 to 30 years is anywhere from 10 to 17%, and this rate increases sharply from 20% at age 35 years to 40% at age 40 years and up to 80% at age 45. Common symptoms of early pregnancy loss include vaginal bleeding and uterine cramping, and these are also common in normal gestation. They also can be seen in ectopic pregnancy and molar pregnancy. Therefore, a full evaluation is needed. There's various subtypes of early pregnancy loss, from threatened abortion to a inevitable abortion an incomplete abortion, a missed abortion, and a blighted ovum, also called an anembryonic gestation. Ultrasound, if available, is a preferred modality to verify the presence of a viable intrauterine gestation. In some instances, making a diagnosis of early pregnancy loss is fairly straightforward and requires limited testing or imaging. However, there is a discriminatory zone of beta-8CG level under which visualization of an intrauterine pregnancy may not be possible. In the past, this discriminatory zone was 1,500 to 2,000. However, more recently, ACOG has raised a discriminatory zone of beta-8CG, or quantitative 8CG, to now being 3,000 to 3,500. Failure to visualize an intrauterine pregnancy at a beta-8CG serum level of 3,500 or greater raises a suspicion and possibility of an ectopic tubal pregnancy. According to ACOG, the findings on ultrasound, which are diagnostic of early pregnancy loss, include the following. A fetal crown rump length of 7 millimeters or greater without a heartbeat or a mean sac diameter of 25 millimeters or greater without an embryo that is also called a blighted ovum or an anembryonic gestation. An absence of an embryo with a heartbeat two weeks or more after an ultrasound shows a gestational sac without a yolk sac. And lastly, absence of an embryo with a heartbeat 11 days or more after an ultrasound that shows a gestational sac with a yolk sac. All right, next, let's cover management strategies for dealing with an early pregnancy loss. 
Regarding management, there's three main scopes of practice. The first is expectant management, the second medical management, and the third is surgical evacuation or DNC. Regarding management, there's three main schemes of how to approach early pregnancy loss. The first is expectant management, the second is medical management, and then the third is surgical evacuation or a DNC. Regarding expectant management, expectant management is an option, but it really should be limited to the first trimester because second trimester fetal losses have an increased risk of infection and hemorrhage. With adequate time, up to eight weeks, expectant management of first trimester pregnancy loss can be successful in achieving complete expulsion in about 80% of cases. Patients undergoing expectant management may experience moderate to heavy bleeding and cramping. Educational materials instructing the patient on when and who to call for excessive bleeding and prescriptions for pain medications should be provided. Of course, any patient who chooses expectant management should be closely followed in the outpatient setting. In those who have chosen expectant management, when heavy, uncontrolled bleeding occurs or if fever becomes present, then surgical evaluation is necessary. Now, for patients who are interested in shortening the time to a complete expulsion but prefer to avoid surgical evacuation, treatment with misoprostol, which is a prostaglandin E1 analog, is useful and accepted as a viable medication. The recommended initial dosage of misoprostol is 800 micrograms vaginally. One repeat dose may be administered as needed no earlier than three hours after the first dose and typically can be given within seven days if there is no response to the first dose. Prescriptions for pain medications should be provided as well. Women who are RH negative and unsensitized should receive Rogam within 72 hours of the first misoprostol administration. Follow-up to document the complete passive tissue can be accompanied by ultrasound examination, typically within 7 to 14 days. Serial beta-8CG serum measurements can be used instead in settings where ultrasound is unavailable. Now, if Mr. Prostol fails, the patient may opt for expectant management for a time determined by the woman and her OBGYN physician or other provider or suction DNC. There is growing and recent evidence that the addition of mifepristone, a progesterone receptor antagonist, added to misoprostol is more efficacious than misoprostol alone. However, this data is relatively new and still not yet widely adopted. For patients who choose either expectant management or medical management, the women should understand that much bleeding can occur and they should be educated on when to reach out to their physician. An easy reference for the patient is to use soaking of two maxi pads per hour for two consecutive hours. The patient should also be advised to call her OB-GYN provider or other healthcare provider if she experiences this level of bleeding, feels lightheaded, or has persistent passage of clots. Next, there's the option of surgical management, which is an obstetrical dilation and curatage, or a DNC. Surgical uterine evacuation has long been the traditional approach for women presenting with early pregnancy loss and retained tissue. Women who present with hemorrhage, hemodynamic instability, or signs of infection should be treated urgently with surgical uterine evacuation. Surgical evaluation may also be preferable in other situations, including the presence of medical comorbidities like severe anemia, bleeding disorders, or cardiovascular disease. 
The risk of infection after suction curettage for missed early abortion or missed early pregnancy loss should be similar to that after suction curettage for induced abortion and generally is quite low. Therefore, despite the lack of data, antibiotic prophylaxis can be considered for patients with early pregnancy loss who undergo a suction DNC. The use of a single pre-op dose of doxycycline is recommended to prevent infection after surgical management of early pregnancy loss. Some experts have recommended administration of a single 200 milligram dose of doxy one hour before surgical management of early pregnancy loss to prevent post-op infection. The use of antibiotics based only on the diagnosis of incomplete pregnancy loss has not been found to reduce infectious complications as long as unsafe induced abortion is not suspected. The benefit of antibiotic prophylaxis for this medical management of early pregnancy loss is also really unknown. Lastly, no workup generally is recommended until after the second consecutive clinical early pregnancy loss. Maternal or fetal chromosome analysis or testing for inherited thrombophilias are not recommended routinely after one early pregnancy loss. Additionally, although thrombophilias commonly are thought as a cause of early pregnancy loss, only antiphospholipid antibody syndrome consistently has been shown to be significantly associated with early pregnancy loss. In addition, the use of anticoagulants, aspirin, or both has not been shown to reduce the risk of early pregnancy loss in women with thrombophilias except in those with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. To date, there are no effective interventions known to prevent early pregnancy loss. Therefore, patients must understand there's nothing which could have been done to prevent it. All right, as we wrap up this podcast, a quick word about the genetics of early pregnancy loss. Remember that most are due to either A, autosomal trisomy, autosomal triploidy, or monosomy X. Those are the three categories of genetic abnormalities most common in early spontaneously passed fetuses. Lastly, there are different types, as mentioned earlier, of spontaneous early pregnancy loss, threatened spontaneous abortion, inevitable abortion, complete abortion, incomplete abortion, a missed abortion or an anembryonic gestation, also called a a blighted ovum, or a septic abortion. All of these are classed and defined based on the findings on ultrasound, the presence or absence of cervical dilation, and the presence or absence of active vaginal bleeding. Okay, that wraps up our quick review of early spontaneous pregnancy loss, otherwise known as spontaneous abortion. Specifically, we focused on those in the first trimester. Data for this came from the ACOG Practice Bulletin, which was last updated in May of 2015. We'll see you next time.